0: smell and salt. Don lost all its flavor. I ought to brung some acrobatic ammonia with me.
1: It would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of Amos and Andy to the story of radio, or in any way to embellish the power they had over their audience of 40 million people. That was one in three of the population. Eat your heart out, Pop Idol.
2: Roosevelt, who would give fireside chats, refused to go on in their time slot thinking no one would listen to him knowing his wife would not listen to him because she was a huge Amos and Andy fan.
3: Theater owners were finding it necessary to turn on radios over the sound system to attract an audience because otherwise people would stay home and listen to Amos and Andy.
1: The department stores were open in the evening. They couldn't get people to come to the store unless they piped in the Amos and Andy program. On a
2: really really warm summer night when there was no air conditioning Where people sat on the porch, if one place had Amos and Andy tuned in, they all did. And you could literally walk the length of neighborhoods without ever stopping and never miss a word of the show.
4: You know, I believe Ruby got better looking since you went away. He is certainly good looking now. Mm -mm.
0: Listen, Amos, don't let no good looking gal fool you. I thought Willa Parker was good looking.
4: He ain't good looking as Ruby is, though, I tell you that much.
1: Not only were Amos and Andy extraordinarily popular, but they were true innovators. They created a whole mess of stuff that became common practice in radio and later found its way onto television. For instance, they invented the serial, meaning that you can trace Amos and Andy's bloodline directly to the archers on radio and EastEnders on television. They also came up with the idea of syndication. Amos and Andy was also the first recorded program. This at a time when live was everything
0: when you was in love with them, you think they is pretty. But after you fall out with them, you wonder what you see in them in the first place.
4: You can't repair a ruby though, with, with a papa, in it.
0: Well, that's all right, Amos. That's all right.
1: Oh, one more thing. The two most important, most influential black Americans in U.S. broadcasting history, and arguably the two best-known black Americans of their era, Amos Jones and Andrew Hogg Brown, were conceived by... Written by and performed by Freeman Gosden and Charles Corell, both of whom happened to be white.
4: Mm-mm,
1: the Does that mean that one of the biggest shows in American radio for 30 years was just a minstrel act? You know, blackface and white lips and rolling eyes? No, not at all. But it starts with Gosden and Correll in the very early 20s, both looking to get into show business and both winding up working for a man named Joe Brenn. Elizabeth McLeod is Amos and Andy's biographer.
3: Joe Pran was a, a vaudeville performer and songwriter around the turn of the century. Uh, he was based out of Chicago, and around 1910 he came up with an idea that uh, fit into with what was going on with small town entertainment during that era.
1: What was going on was let's make up our own entertainment. Bren's company helped organizations like the Elks, Masons, and Rotary put on their own amateur shows by providing professional know-how. Correll, who came from Peoria, Illinois, and Gosden, a native of Richmond, Virginia, joined the company after the First World War and spent the next five years traveling around the country, putting on the show right here.
3: They began to get tired of being on the road all the time. And in 1924, Joe Bren took them off the road and moved them back to Chicago. Freeman was assigned to the uh, circus division whereas Charlie was put in charge of the amateur show division. This meant they could stay in Chicago so they took a room together and they began thinking about doing an act of their own.
1: Vaudeville was everywhere but theirs wasn't really a vaudeville act. And even if they could have taken it on the road, commercial radio was happening in America. It was a social revolution, though they didn't know it at the time, and Chicago was at the center of it. So Carell and Gosden auditioned their act for station W.E.B.H. It was owned by the Edgewater Beach Hotel. And soon found themselves literally singing for their supper.
3: They would appear a couple of nights a week over W.E.B.H., and the Edgewater Beach Hotel would feed them after the show. And they began to do different harmony songs. And one song that they hit on was was not a song that they wrote, it was a popular song in the summer of 1925 called the Kinky Kids Parade. It was a song about a little group of black children playing parade in the backyard. It was a very innocuous little song as songs like that go. And several orchestras had recorded it and it was you know it was, it was a mainstream song hit of the day.
1: Corell and Gosden recorded the song, but their version was never released. Because it's such an important part of their story, here's the Paul Whiteman rendition.
3: One night, when they performed this song, they decided to interpolate a little bit of dialogue. They had been doing dialogue in their songs for a while now, but this exchange they did in black dialect, since the song dealt with black characters and it caught on with Chicago radio listened. It became a major success for them, and they began to get requests for it.
1: Now things started to move very fast. They got headhunted by radio station WGN, which was owned by the Chicago Tribune.
3: And the Tribune had been a pioneer in the syndication of comic strips, and their most successful strip was called The Gumps. It was a serialized domestic comedy-drama about a bombastic man with opinions on everything, whose plans never seemed to work out, and his naive but wealthy uncle. We want you to do a show about the Gumps. This is Jane Gosden,
1: Freeman's wife.
5: And Freeman, who was not married at that time, Mm -hmm. said, I don't know about family
3: life. And he said, but we can do a show about the black. At this point, the Kinky Kids Parade came into their mind. Let's do a show about a couple of colored characters. Why don't we do a show about a couple of colored characters coming north looking for a job? Because this was happening in real life in Chicago in huge numbers. This was the, the, the very heart of the Great Migration. And it was a scene that was very familiar to black and white listeners. Henry, that
4: telephone ought to ring any minute now. The operator said that she'd call me back as soon as she could get Birmingham, and that's been 30 minutes ago.
0: I'm getting tired of hanging around here waiting for you now.
4: Wait a minute now, Henry, wait a minute. Don't rush off and leave me here. I've got
0: to talk to Liza. I'm getting madder and madder now. The longer I stay waiting for you to talk to that crazy gal, Liza, the madder I get. Wait a minute now,
4: Henry. Wait a minute. Don't leave me here.
1: Some people argue that was the birth of Amos and Andy. Purists, however, insist it wasn't because the two characters were called Sam and Henry. Still, according to Elizabeth McLeod, Coral and Gosden were a great success.
3: It was not two characters telling jokes, and at that time when you heard black dialect on the air, you expected jokes. You expected broad comedy, because this is what minstrel shows had, had been based on. The first episode of Sam & Henry had no jokes in it at all, and really not no humorous situations even. It was a pretty straightforward dialogue about two guys getting ready to go north. And listeners took a while to get used to this, but by the spring of 1926, they had taken Chicago pretty much by storm. They were on the air five nights a week at 10 p.m. And they went out for ten minutes, and listeners caught them, listened to them a few nights, picked up the storyline, and then realized they wanted to hear the next episode.
0: There it
4: is, there it is now.
0: Take your time now, take your time, don't get so excited.
4: Hello? Yes, ma'am, I'm calling Birmingham.
0: Be
1: careful now what you say to that gal. The first thing you know, you're going to be asking her to marry her. That's okay.
4: what I want to do, Henry. Uh-oh,
1: oh. now I know you, are crazy. It was obvious to everyone that they were on to a winner, there was merchandising and licensing and everyone was making money off the back of it that is everyone but Correll and Gosden
3: they were still only making $125 a week on their Tribune contract and this did not please them in the fall of 1926 they went to New York and they made their first network broadcast they had been making phonograph records for the Victor Company and their experience of being heard on a national level, combined with their experience making phonograph records, led them to think that maybe there's another way to do this. Maybe if we record our program on phonograph records and lease it to other stations nationally, we won't have to be on a wired network. We will have national circulation and there'll be national revenues coming in from the show.
1: The solution, after a couple of years when their contract ran out, was to join another radio station. This time it was WMAQ, owned by the Tribune's rival paper, the Daily News. They got themselves a better contract, syndication rights, and, most importantly, copyright on the characters and scripts. The only problem was that the Tribune owned the rights to Sam and Henry, but that wasn't going to stop Corell and Gosden. Monday night, June 10th, Amos Fernandes. On March 19th, 1928, listeners all over Chicagoland listeners who could hear any of the 39 affiliated stations across the country unknowingly shared a brief moment in history. The first program in a series which would continue in some form or other until the early 1960s. A program that earned the love of a nation.
4: How do I look, Anne? How I look?
1: Oh, you look all right. Go on over there and talk love. Go
0: on over there and kiss us.
4: How do my guy look here?
0: You look all right. Don't put no more of that grease on your hair, though. You're loading it down with it now. Look at you. Don't you? Yeah, do
4: that. sir, that's my baby. Well, Andy, I'll see you later. So long, boy.
0: So long, so long.
4: I, I, I'll be home of early.
0: Well, there you go. In love. When a man's in love with some gal, he's sitting on top of the world. Next thing you know, he's down in the gutter or something. Love is all right, though. I gotta get myself a new yell.
1: Amos and Andy were never minstrel stereotypes. Gosden and Carell were more than just skillful in honing characterization and narrative to the point that the two new heroes were rounded, believable, likable neighbors to all America. But there's no denying that the origins of the characters they created, first as Sam and Henry, then as Amos and Andy, can be traced to the two most famous minstrel characters in history, Jim Crow and Zip Coon.
5: These are two characters that arise out of the very early years of vaudeville.
1: Michelle Hilmes is a respected historian of American radio.
5: You have the character of Jim Crow, and that's really the earliest minstrel show figure. Um, And he is the sort of hapless, um, happy-go-lucky, singing and dancing portrayal of, let's say, the Black character under slavery, you know, easy to take advantage of, a little bit simple-minded. Zip Coon arises somewhat after that, during the period of Reconstruction, and uh, many feel represents anxieties around the liberated African American as someone who is a know-it-all, puts himself forward in exaggerated ways, but then reveals in the end that he doesn't really understand what he's talking about that he's you know full of hot air and certainly in Amos and Andy you see that very strongly reflected in those two characters with Amos playing the Jim Crow the more sincere simple-minded easily misled constantly falling into the plans of Andy the Zip coon character who is full of himself and full of bravado and leads them into all kinds of disasters
3: the smart guy dumb guy convention in comedy was not an exclusively minstrel situation. I mean, you had comedy teams in vaudeville, German comedy, Jewish comedy, any sort of ethnic comedy, even straight white comedians, doing someone who was very, thought he was very smart and someone who didn't seem very smart but actually was. I mean, this was a very standard convention.
1: In the end, Jim Crow and Zip Kuhn are too simple to be seen as defining Amos and Andy. Charles Carell's son, Rich, defends the pair from any accusation of burnt cork.
2: Gossett and Carell were never vaudevillians, and they also were not interested in minstrel shows. They were interested in a format where these two characters got together, discussed life, discussed business, discussed problems, discussed relationships, discussed women, discussed anything they needed to discuss as real people. They never, ever were ever excited about trying to caricature their characters, ever a lot of the time they were referred to as minstrel comedians or performers. That's just the way some people perceived anything that were whites playing blacks, but they themselves were not interested in that format.
1: It doesn't take a lot of listening to a minstrel show to recognize the difference between that and the kind of serial that Carell and Gosden were trying to create in Amos and Andy.
4: Doggone
0: this, I'm mad. They ain't going to treat me that way now. Nah, I ain't going to stand for it. This morning when I was eating breakfast, I ordered some more griddle cakes and the waitress consulted me. Yeah, what did she say? She said I would get sick if I had more griddle cakes because I had already had 27 griddle cakes. <laughs> was that when you got insulted? Yeah, I got so mad I got up from the table and I wouldn't eat no breakfast at all.
1: That was pick and pat, but it could have been any of several like molasses in January or the Two Black Crows, or Watermelon and Cantaloupe. No, not the Amos and Andy route at all, as Michelle Hilmes explains.
5: Within a very strongly prejudiced era, their program never indulged in the extremely negative racial stereotypes that would sometimes surface in other programs. It definitely did not go the route of demeaning African Americans, and they were conscious of that and deliberate about it.
1: According to Damon Fordham, a scholar of African-American studies from the University of South Carolina, Freeman Gosden had a particular insight into black life in the South.
2: He was raised with a young black man by the name of Garrett Brown, who uh, had the nickname of Snowball. And uh, Garrett Brown had this uh, flair for unusual colloquialisms. He would say things like, "Mm mm-mm, ain't that something and the like. And so... Freeman Gostin was very intrigued by his young friend's manner of speech and he often openly acknowledged the fact that a lot of it was from Garrett Brown's mannerisms.
1: But the ability to imitate black speech patterns wouldn't have been enough on its own.
3: What really captured people was the sense of living the lives of these characters. Every night you spent 10 minutes sitting in the taxicab office with Amos and Andy and listening to them talk and you heard about their hopes and dreams and fears and you felt like they were your friends. You knew these people on an intimate level that made them seem like parts of your family and you got to the point where you really cared about them. And if you look at letters that listeners wrote to the program and to fan magazines during that period, you get this overwhelming sense that they were relating to the program as a mirror of their own lives.
1: Believe it or not, many people in America had never met a black person. This was only 60 years after slavery and the Civil War, and racial fences were still very high. And yet, somehow, Corell and Gosden brought two poor African-Americans into the nation's living rooms, where they were welcomed to be what Elizabeth McLeod describes as mirror images of every man's life.
3: The defining factor of their identity was that they were, they were poor, working-class people trying to survive and this was a time when perhaps most of America was poor and working class and they could relate to the problems of Amos and Andy in a way that they would not have related to the problems of upscale white characters. They were ordinary I think is the word. I think Amos and Andy were very ordinary Americans who happened to be black and I think their ordinariness as human beings was what transcended the racial element and enabled. Amos and Andy were able to
5: create a universe on the radio that was a fantasy universe that had an appeal for both white and black viewers. It really did paint a world in which there was no racial prejudice or discrimination and in which black society was every bit as rich and as well-established as white society was. Um, You had sort of a self-enclosed African-American world in a way of neighborhoods, of churches, of banks, of doctors and lawyers, schools, universities, uh, people from all walks of life really just incorporated into the world with no comment made of it. Amos and Andy never had an offensive encounter with a white person. Uh, We're never insulted. We're never forced to sit in a segregated balcony. It simply presented us with a world where black citizens in the United States could live a normal life without experiencing the things that, unfortunately, real African Americans all too often did.
1: As it happened, the one time that white society impinged was when Amos suffered a brutal interrogation in police custody.
0: Hey, shut up, shut up. That don't sound good to me. I don't want to hear it. Hey, Mac, you wait here. I'll take him down and call the wagon.
4: Wait a minute, mister, mister, please, don't take me nowhere. Don't call no wagon Shut me.
0: up, shut up, will you? You want a sock in the nose?
4: No, sir, no, sir, mister, don't hit me, please, sir.
0: They caught you red-handed, kid, trying to steal fur coats. Caught you red-handed, got you with the goods.
4: No, sir, mister, I ain't trying to steal nothing. I'm I ain't trying to steal nothing.
1: There were complaints to the network and to the sponsor, most notably from the National Association of Chiefs of Police, who didn't appreciate the way the cops were portrayed. Carell and Gosden were ordered to kill the storyline, which they did, by making the whole thing into a dream, shades of Bobby Ewing in the TV soap Dallas. But from then on, the world of Amos and Andy remained hermetically sealed, which isn't to say it was a complete fantasy. According to Elizabeth MacLeod, in many American cities in the early part of the last century, you would have found a small but budding black middle class, something Freeman Gosden recognized and understood and put into Amos and Andy, having seen it firsthand while growing up.
3: There's a section of Richmond called Navy Hill, which kind of slopes down and becomes Jackson Ward. That was, at the turn of the century, the point where the black and white sections of Richmond mixed. And uh, Freeman spent a lot of his childhood on the streets in Jackson Ward. Jackson Ward was important in that it was the commercial and cultural capital of the black southeast at that time. There were a huge number of black-owned businesses, banks... The fraternal orders, schools. It was a very self-sufficient, well-organized community.
0: seems to me that they are taking an awful lot of time to release, Amos. I've signed the papers, and seems to me he should be out by now. Yes, yeah, sir. The man told us to wait here in the waiting room, that he was going to get him. Well, perhaps they're investigating me. They wanted to know if I owned any property, and maybe that's what they're checking up on now. You know, Mr. Taylor... I can't help but feel sorry for Amos. Yes, Andy, it's very unfortunate. And of course, Amos is embarrassed on account of Ruby. Ruby has been trying to keep it away from me, and it's caused quite a bit of embarrassment all the way around.
5: That was rather an appealing vision for many white Americans, too. We don't have to worry about race in America. See, African Americans have a life that's just like ours. There's no discrimination, and what are these people complaining about?
1: Ironically, many black Americans appreciated that view of themselves, Damon Fordham recalls how Amos and Andy was a part of his childhood.
2: Overall, it was not looked on very highly, the idea of blackface itself, but however, in the case of Amos and Andy, they did have some considerable popularity within the black community, among them being my father, I should add. When I was a child, long before I ever heard of an episode of Amos and Andy, he would amuse me in his bedtime stories by doing little imitations of the characters and the like. Wait a minute. Here he come. Here he come
0: back.
4: Another Taylor! I don't know how to start the you for this.
0: Well, that's all right, Amos. I know just how you feel. Now, just forget about it.
4: I know, Mr. Taylor, but I feel embarrassed. You done done so much for me. I just want to believe, though, Mr. Taylor, that I ain't had nothing to do with this thing that the rest of me for.
0: Well, just try not to worry, Amos. Just try not to worry. That's perfectly all right.
1: When they took the show on the road, as they did very successfully in the 30s, they had no trouble maintaining a range of characters, They didn't even bother to black up, according to Charles Carell's son, Rich.
2: My mother and father met in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when my mom was in this vaudeville circuit, and Amos and Andy were touring, but there were vaudevillians on a bill to fill out the show, and then here comes Amos and Andy. My mom said that she was doing adagio work, she'd get out there and work her tail off, jugglers would come out, flip all over the place, you know, guys had all these acts with dogs and weightlifters and trapeze and everything. And then she said these two guys came out in suits and ties, never broke a sweat, stood there and talked, and the audience laughed for an hour straight. Now, all they did was say, I was it, or
1: what you doing? And everyone would go crazy. America continued to go crazy for most of the 30s. But Carell and Gosden continued to innovate. They added more characters. The two men played most of the new characters as well giving those new characters an edge and in so doing changing the nature of the show
5: as the show evolved amos's character became much more normalized i think listeners started to identify with amos he was the more sympathetic one he marries eventually he has a family Uh, he becomes a normalized character that people of all kinds can identify with, and the show kind of leaves him behind. He's still there, but it begins to focus more on Andy, the more humorous character, the one who's a little more outrageous. Even he becomes somewhat more normalized, and so they have to introduce some even more extreme characters on each side. So on the uh, Amos side, you get the figure of Lightning, who is really almost a mentally deficient character.
4: Uh, Mr. Andy.
0: Oh, what is it, Lightning? Uh,
4: What kind of present is you taking the king to? Uh, when? Uh, uh, when you go to his Christmas be party tonight?
0: Oh, I ain't taking him nothing.
4: Oh, gee, that's too bad, my man. I'm so sorry to hear that.
0: Well, what do you care if I ain't taking him nothing?
4: Because we are both taking him the same thing.
5: And then you get um, Kingfish, who is full of schemes, and you know always has a million things going on that fall flat in the end and mislead everyone.
4: Uh, Everything's going
0: all right now, Andy. Don't worry about nothing. Remember, I'm looking out for your interest. Well, listen, Kingfish, why don't the thing start? Yeah, well, I just sent Layton back there to tell the organ to stop playing and, and let the mixed
4: chorus sing, then we go right on. Yeah. And then, then we're almost ready to start, Andy.
5: As though the first two characters start out in these stereotypes, they become beloved, and they become normal, they become uh, the characters that people tune in to hear, but actually far more time is spent on the comic exploits of their more experienced,
1: you could say. Carell and Gosden had never taken political sides, yet had never hesitated in assuming the role of cheerleaders for the national spirit. During the Great Depression, which had gripped America in the 30s, storylines had a Franklin Roosevelt New Deal flavor about them, in part joking, in part warning about serious subjects like wildcat banks. Now, faced with America's entry into World War II, they use their characters, made-up black Americans who'd instilled themselves inside the American psyche to play up those values that America has always treasured.
4: What does the Lord's Prayer mean, Daddy? Well, it means an awful lot, honey, and with the world like it is today, it seems to have a bigger meaning than ever before.
1: This is Amos in 1942 explaining the Lord's Prayer Lord's to his daughter, Arbadella. Well, it touched the nation so name. deeply that it was repeated every year on Christmas Eve.
4: The first line of the Lord's Prayer is this. Our Father, which art in heaven, that means Father of all that is good, where no wrong can dwell. And then the next line is...
1: Next week, the change from serial to sitcom, from radio to television, from success to disaster. Post-war America brought a new consciousness that not only left Amos and Andy behind, but nearly forgot about them entirely. Amen.
4: That means, darling, that all the world and everything that's in it belongs to God's kingdom. Everything. Mommy, your daddy, your little brother, your grandma, you, and everybody. And as we know that, and act as if we know it. That is the real spirit of Christmas. Oh, that's good, Daddy.
1: The Real Amos and Andy was presented by Jeffrey Robinson, produced in Edinburgh by...